Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Have a little, little segue here in the middle. We covered through verse number 7, and, uh, or verse number 10, excuse me, of chapter 7 here already. And uh, we have been talking about, if you remember, the superiority of the order, or the priesthood order of Melchizedek. And uh, uh, the laying of the groundwork here, and we talked about the ways in which it is superior, because that then propels us, or is foundational for verses 11 and following, which you get in tonight. And it's a wonderful passage. So let's just remind ourselves quickly what we saw be a very quick review we saw first of all one of the ways was the extent of the priesthood you see the the uh, blank here that priesthood of Melchizedek encompassed uh, really all of the the known world not just a singular nation as it did for Israel and uh, it wasn't limited to only one nation as we stayed here and so important description part of its superiority the order of Melchizedek letter B we saw that the royal nature of the priesthood and Melchizedek. It was a beautiful picture of how Jesus Christ, his lordship, his kingship is united in one person as it is in him. And so it was, a, a, again, a picture of looking forward to what would happen in Christ. And so Melchizedek's a great picture of that, the royal aspect about that, okay? And then we looked at, you remember letter C, the permanency of the righteousness and the peace uh, of Christ, uh, of that priesthood. Uh, Melchizedek represented well that meaning of the king and the ruler also, peace, Salem there, the king of, uh, of Salem, uh, representative of peace, shalom, and such. And so uh, we also talked about reality is, as that's the meaning of the name Melchizedek, king of Salem, that uh, it was a picture of Christ, obviously in the two ways, that Christ is going to bring peace, and he uh, is obviously going to bring righteousness to you and I. And that's, first of all, he did it spiritually. We understand that. He, he made reconciliation for you and I with God, and uh, he made uh, us righteous in God's eyes. He brought us peace with God that only Christ could do. Secondly, we know that's going to happen physically. We look forward to the day and the age when uh, Christ himself will rule on the throne of David, and he will rule in the millennial kingdom, and peace and righteousness will kiss, as that verse we looked at in Psalm 85, 84 uh, there um, uh, describes, and as Isaiah describes extensively how his throne and his rule and reign will be noted as peaceful and righteousness, the first time that the world will experience it uh, throughout its entirety. Then we talked about the personage, letter D, personage of the priesthood, and uh, we talked about how um, Melchizedek was chosen as a priest, there's no royal royal lineage or, or priestly lineage, hereditary, and uh, he was chosen as much uh, for the worth and the quality. He, he's righteous. That's the picture of Christ. Why is Christ our Savior and our priest? Because he's righteous. What he did on the cross of Calvary, and so he was chosen. And really, that statement, if I could put it that way, the reality is, you know, he was chosen, and that really does say it all, doesn't it? That he was chosen. And uh, that's, we'll see it tonight. We're actually hit on that quite a bit tonight, too, and that uh, the author does here in the rest of chapter 7. Then letter E, we talked about the eternality uh, of the priesthood in the reality that uh, is obviously forever. He abideth a priest continually, and uh, knowing no limitation of time or validity, and he's now and forever our high priest, a great truth. Uh, letter F, we looked at the, the, there was a recognized authority of this priesthood, right? Um, they saw that Abraham, their patient, patriarch submitted to it. He, he put himself under the authority of Melchizedek, and he did so several different ways, as we talked about here. And the first was obvious, that he, give, he gave tithes. Um, the first few verses, 
verses 1 through 3 here in Hebrews chapter 7, recount Genesis 14, that interaction of Abraham returning from war and, uh, with Lot and all the spoils and things and his interaction there with Melchizedek. So the first way we saw it, as you see here, is he tied to the spoils of his mini war, if we could describe it as such, to Melchizedek as he would to God, recognizing him as the priest of the Most High God. Secondly, Abraham was blessed, right? We talked about this extensively, and I think this is a great, this is a very unique and, and special emphasis of the beginning of chapter 7. He says that um, uh, Abraham was blessed in Melchizedek, and we looked at verse 7 specifically, and uh, it puts forth that principle that the blesser is indisputably greater than the blessing recipient. And uh, it's a great truth that we have borne out here in this passage. Okay, without contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Speaking of Melchizedek's superiority to even Abraham. And that would have kind of been a shock and awe for the Jew as they read this and understood the passage here before us. Then last but not least, we saw how the, the author here, we believe to be Paul, he puts forth that Levi and all the descendant, the priests, tied to Melchizedek in Abraham. And so... Uh, it would have been very hard for them to continue to argue that the Levitical priesthood was far superior to that priesthood that uh, in the form of Abraham, the entirety of the Jewish nation and Levitical priesthood submitted to, gave tithes to. And we, we called it last week as we finished up as kind of a gotcha moment. As they came to verse 10 and all of these points and evidence were submitted to them and uh, as such. Now we get to move on. Now we see as we understand the superiority of the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood, that God himself says that Christ is after the order of the Melchizedek. In fact, this is one of those statements that is repeatedly mentioned here in Hebrews. At the end of chapter 6, you remember it, he kind of introduced chapter 7 for us, saying, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a phrase, a quote that's repeated. We'll see that tonight. Multiple times in Hebrews, because the identification with Christ and with Melchizedek, right? So we've established the superiority of the order of Melchizedek. Now he says, Christ is associated with that. Now let's look at the superiority of Christ's priesthood. And he bears out several things that for you and I, I think is even more practically impressive than maybe these previous verses. I would say those first 10 verses and what we've studied, that was to hit home with the Jew. Now, you and I can take the remainder of chapter 7, and you and I as a believer, a New Testament believer, can say, wow, my high priest is superior to anything. My high priest, my Savior, my Jesus Christ is greater than anything, any priest that the world has ever known, that the Old Testament has known, that the Jews have ever known. And in that sense, this is really for you and I tonight in the passage that we'll study and look at even, okay? So let's look, if you will, verse 11 and 15, okay? Verses 11 and 15, if you will. Notice what verse 11 says. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also the law. That's verse 12. Jump down to verse 15, actually. Let's do that. And it, it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Now, verses 11 and 15 have a similar statement, a similar phrase. Okay? I want you to look. We're going to focus for just a few moments at the word that comes before the word priest. 
in both verses, verse 11 and verse 15, you'll look there, there's one word that comes before the word priest, and that really is the focal point of the, or the subject matter of the passage tonight. What is that? Well, it says this, there is another priest, okay? It's an interesting word that we have presented to us here. The Greek word is heteros, right? And uh, we certainly know and understand the meaning of it in our own English language when we think of hetero as opposed to homo, and homo meaning much of the same, hetero being difference or a different, okay? So we understand even from how it's used in our English language what the Greek word heteros means here. It means different, okay? And uh, we could take a few examples. If I were to hold up a uh, let's just say I was to hold up for you a, a basketball, okay? And I asked you, I said, is this a ball? Well, yes, that is a ball, okay? And I would hold up in my other hand a football. I ask you, is that a ball? Well, yes, it is a ball. So is it, are these two balls, a basketball and a football, the same? Well, the answer would be yes and no, right? Okay? And uh, yes and no, right? Because uh, yes, they are both balls. There's no doubt of it. We all understand basketball, football, both the same. However, they are different. They're different in their shape, their design. They're different in their use. In a sense, we could say they're kind of different in their very nature, okay? Have you ever tried to play basketball with a football? Yeah, some of us probably have, all right? I'm a youth pastor. I've done it before with the youth group, right? And uh, that's fun. And uh, yeah, it doesn't work quite the same, though, does it? Okay, you ever tried to dribble a football with a basketball? Like about you do a basketball? Okay, that didn't work too well, okay? And so they do different things. Have you ever tried to play football with a basketball? Okay, you say, maybe, and that's uh, totally different than how the football is used. So we understand the meaning of the word. That's the same meaning of the word here, okay? Uh, The priests, they're both priests, but they're both very different. Yes, they're the same in that they're priests, but this is another that is different. That's the literal meaning of the word here in both verse 11 and verse 15. Very important to our understanding of this passage. What's being presented to us is, okay, now here is another priest. Uh, yes, Aaron was a priest. The priests of the Old Testament were priests like Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. These are all priests, but here's another priest that is altogether different. You'll see, I want you to understand the meaning of the word here um, is, uh, see, kind of a textbook definition, if we could put it this way. Another, one not of the same nature, form, class, kind. Literally, it's different. Okay, it's not another of the same. Okay, I I could hold in my hand a basketball here, and I could hold in my hand a basketball here. I could say, well, here's another ball. And that's true, but it's exactly the same. It's another basketball. But I put a football in this hand, and the reality is I have another ball, but I don't have another basketball. There's something different. That's literally the meaning of the word. So that's why it's so crucial for you and I to get the meaning of this Greek word because it really helps us to understand the passage. What's being presented from verse 11 following all the way to verse 28. Here is another priest, but this priest is different. Not of the same kind and nature, not of the same description as what we see in the Old Testament. And if you were to ask me, what was the, what's the rest of chapter 7 really presenting to us? This would be the answer. Another high priest but one far different and superior to all the priests of the Old Testament, even Aaron. And so that is what is presented to you and I even this evening, okay? Um, In fact, verse 11 kind of describes it for us, doesn't it? Because it kind of presents it in two different ways. And so if you were to think of the rest of chapter 7, how is it presented to us? It really is a comparison contrast. 
and uh, it really just lays it out. Here's what this is. Here's what this is. Here's what the order of Aaron is. You see that? Even verse number 11 alludes to it. The Levitical priesthood, the order of Aaron, it says that, verse 11. And then the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ is the priest. Here's the contrast and comparison that will now flow all the way through verse 28, as we'll see in the passage here. Okay, so let's start with the first comparison and contrast. Look with me in verse 13, if you will. Okay, we're going to cover quite a bit of verses tonight, at least in part. Notice verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthoods. Okay, so the first thing there, letter A, the, the point of comparison or contrast would be the tribe, the tribe. Okay, what do we mean? Well, Christ was uh, from the tribe of Judah. The priests from the Old Testament were from the tribe of Levi. Now, we have covered this. We're not going to go into it in great detail at all, okay? So we've expounded upon it. we studied. But suffice it to say, we remind ourselves that the priests in the Old Testament were solely based upon belonging to the tribe of Levi, uh, that hereditary, okay? There is no other way. But here's the point of it. Why are we bringing it back up? Why does the author of Hebrews, and you will notice in our study of Hebrews, he will introduce concepts and he will add to them. For instance, we talked about this before, okay? Uh, from a kindergarten to first grade to fourth grade to seventh grade to ninth grade, as you study math, as you study English, you are added precept upon precept. Uh, truths, principles, concepts are added every step of the way. We're not teaching, uh, teaching trigonometry to kindergartners or first grade unless your child is exceptional, okay? And we build on it, right? We're, added, we're talking addition, we're talking subtraction, then division, and so forth and so on. And then we get up to algebra, algebra 2, and the trigonometry. We build on it, right? So much like in Hebrews, or much like that in Hebrews, the author's doing the same thing. He might introduce the concept in the early chapters, but he expounds on it. And so here we are. You say, well, Pastor Henry, we've already heard about Jesus being of the tribe of Judah. We, we've seen that lineage. We've seen the hereditary. You're right, but he adds another point to it. Here's the point. How was that established in the Old Testament? In other words, how did the tribe of Levi be, become the conduit of the priesthood. In other words, every priest had to belong to the tribe of Levi. Well, there was a law that was given to establish that. Okay, and I love the, the statement here that you and I have, okay, and uh, we'll see it described here in a moment, but uh, it, it was literally non-negotiable. Okay? The Mosaic law, God's law proclaimed it. it. It only required qualification of that. That's the only re- requali- qualification required. You had to belong to the tribe of Levi. But, as the passage points out, Christ was of the tribe of Judah. So how can he be priest, okay? And uh, I love the description. We read verses 13 and 14 here. Do you see it? Okay. He pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. In other words, he's saying that nobody from the tribe of Judah was before the altar. Nobody who belonged to that tribe was the one who came before the altar. So that doesn't. And then the next verse, verse 14, he says, of which Judah tribe of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood so he just says no no wait a minute we know that Levi is the only priest or the only tribe from which the priest came only identification of doing the priesthood duties Judah has nothing like that he wasn't before the altar Moses said nothing about Judah so how does Christ become a priest if the law says it has to be of the tribe of Levi okay the author here addresses it look at verse 15 now Okay, we read verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 15, if you will. Verse 15. And it is yet far more evident, okay, 
um, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there riseth another priest. Okay, there's that terminology. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, a human commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Okay, first comparison and contrast. The tribe from which they come. That leads us to our next point. What is it? Well, we'll see it here. Uh, we're going to call it the testimony. We'll get to why we call that here in just a few moments. The testimony. Okay, while the Old Testament law made a man a priest Christ is made a priest by the declaration of God himself while the Old Testament law was the thing that declared or made a man a priest God himself has declared that Christ is a priest okay it was literally the law of God that established the tribe of Levi and Aaron as the priest for that time. And I love this terminology, okay? When it says it was a carnal commandment, okay? It wasn't talking about the immoral carnality, the flesh, the old nature. No, it's talking about the reality of a human commandment, okay? And uh, the law that was supposed to expose the flesh for sure. But reality is that it was a, a, a law given to man, a carnal commandment as it's stated here. Okay, uh, look at verse 28, if you will. Just the first part, we jump ahead. Notice it. For the law maketh men high priest. So that's established. Okay, so how did someone become a priest in the Old Testament? They had to be a tri- of the tribe of Levi, but that was dictated by the law. Okay, could change it. Okay, that was what the law said. And so the priesthood, therefore, now you have to say, no, wait a second. How is God saying there's another priesthood then? How is God saying that Christ is from another priesthood if the tribe of Levi is the recognized, declared by the law, priesthood? It's a good question because we'd have to make this statement. Notice it. The priesthood could not be changed until the law is changed. The priesthood could not be changed until the law is changed. Now, that's an interesting statement, okay? And uh, it bears out in this. As I said, he, he brings the concepts he's already introduced. He uses them to introduce some new concepts along the way. That's what we see here, okay? I am thankful in America that we have some laws that have been established uh, for a long time, even going back to our Constitution, in which a king, or excuse me, scratch that, in which our president or another politician cannot declare themselves to be king, Right? Okay? We have laws that prevent that. In other words, we're, we're not going to, especially coming from England, what did our founding fathers want to avoid? Tyranny. They wanted to avoid the tyranny that they saw, the unjust laws and everything else, the tyranny of the motherland, if you could put it that way. So there were laws established and have been established by which a president cannot establish himself as king of America or the tyrant of America, okay? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that that is the case, okay? Well, I'm sure we can list several presidents we would be scared of if they were a king, amen, with endless power and things like that, okay? So there's checks and balances, there's established laws. Now, internationally speaking, have we not seen countries in which a ruler has said, you know what, I want to stay in power? It, we know it. It's happening in the Middle East or, excuse me, in Europe even now. It's happened in the Middle East before. It's happening in Europe now, right? I mean, uh, we, we have a, the, the leader of Russia who has done what? Well, if you studied over the last 20 years or so, guess what he's done? He, he, he says, I don't want to give up the rule, and he understands that the law determines how long you can rule, and so what has he done? He's changed the law. He's gone and rewritten the law. 
He's gone back doors. He's convinced the legislatures and others, whatever they call them over there. And he has literally rewritten the law so that the law has been changed so that he can stay in power. And we're in the mess we are in now with Ukraine and everything else. There's been other countries internationally that we can look at, and it's quite an interesting study to see how some of these leaders of countries have gotten laws rewritten so that they then in turn can stay in power. Well, the same reality is true as we see about here, okay? Literally, as those men have done for their own selfish, wicked ambition to rule and uh, to have power, they have done what? They've set aside laws. Literally, if we might put it this way, they've changed, replaced them with other laws or declaration of order. Well, that's exactly what transpires here. Look at verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now, that's a powerful verse. He's saying, listen, the priesthood has changed, and in order for that to take place, there had to be a changing of the law that then kind of said, nope, that law is no longer in practice, or there's another word for it, it's made void, or it's disannulled. Look down with me at verse number 18. That's exactly what it says here. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Okay? That's a great word, right? The disannulling. What does that mean? The word disannulling means, as you see it here, of the commandment of the law is what it's referring to, to set aside, to replace with something else. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit now is opening our eyes as the reader to the fact that the old priesthood and law that established it has been laid aside. In other words, it's no longer binding. It has been replaced. Now, that's a powerful statement. As we said before, now, wait a minute, that happens politically in our own day and age. But this, as it is presented here, is not done by some fallible, selfish, evil, um, sinful ruler among mankind setting aside the rules of a nation for his own personal gain. But rather, this is done by the God of heaven to establish what? Another priest, a different priesthood, so that you and I would have a what? Superior priest. That's the presentation. That, that is the point that's made throughout this and the culmination, if we put it this way. Look at verse 17. Here's where we get the word testimony. Look at verse 17. For he testifieth, that is God himself, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You recognize that verse? That's Psalm 110, verse 4. We've seen it multiple times already here in Hebrews. We just read it at the end of chapter 6. It is quoted probably more than any other verse in Proverbs uh, in its entirety or in part because this is the presentation. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture of this. Here are all the ways there is similitude of Melchizedek and Christ's priesthood, the similarities if we put it this way. Okay? He says what? He testifieth, and uh, literally it's a testimony of God. It's a declaration of God concerning the priesthood of Christ and uh, it is essentially what well another term for it is that it is an oath from God the term oath literally means a solemn promise or covenant okay a solemn promise or covenant and literally an oath of God now here's what I want you to see okay what is the only thing that can dissolve the word of God the word of God 
What's the only thing that can bring to end the Word of God is the Word of God. It's the only thing that can supersede it. It's the only thing that can say, okay, uh, all right, this is done. Christ came along and he said what? Well, the law that God gave is now done away with. In fact, he said what? I have come to do what to the law? Fulfill it. They say that? I'm come to fulfill it. And boy, can I tell you, that added to their claims of heresy. What do you mean? You're done with God's law, and, and rightfully so, in a sense, they were protecting. They say, wait a minute, no man can do away with the law of God. That's right, no man can. But God can do away with the law of God by replacing it with his own law. And so he has. He, this is what it's saying. Listen, God has now made an oath. What is that oath? What is that promise? What has he said? Well, there will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's an order of the priesthood that supersedes the order of Levi and the order of Aaron. This is one that far surpasses, uh, surpasses, it's greatly superior to that order. Only God can establish that. And certainly in the mind of the Jew who's protective of the word of God in a sense, at least the Old Testament the author here has to show them this is the very word of God that has come and replaced, set aside that old law. He, he expounds and explains this in this passage because it was necessary. He has to show for you and I and every Jew and every person reading and studying, it is only God's word that can set aside God's word. And so he does. Look with me, if you will, to verse number 20. Notice what he says here. Here's where we get that word oath. Inasmuch as not without an oath he was made high priest. Okay? So kind of a double negative there in a sense. And the reality is he's saying he was made a high priest with an oath, right? Verse 21, the parenthetical phrase. For those priests, speaking of the Old Testament priests, were made without an oath. But this with an oath. By him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There it is again, repeated again, the same verse. But you see the emphasis. Okay, here's the point that he is getting to. That declaration. He testifieth, thou art a priest after the order forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the comparison is pretty clear and obvious, okay, When he says the word oath, he's saying this is a promise of God, a solemn promise, a covenant of God that he has now established that Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It is by the very promise and covenant of God. It's an establishment of the superiority of Christ's priesthood and position because those of old were just born into it. All you had to do was be part of that tribe. You weren't by oath. God didn't speak from heaven. God didn't say so-and-so, Zechariah was a priest, and say this. No, not at all. That wasn't ordained by God. No, the law was that was given in the Mosaic law. That established the, the Levites as the line of priests. But now God has come along and said, I have something better, much like he has done with the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. And so the author here is presenting the simple truth. They had never had a personal oath declaring them such from God. But yet here is Christ, the one declared by God himself as our high priest. So to kind of put it in a a simple statement, they were made such by a law that is no longer valid. He is declared a priest by an eternal, all-powerful God. The superiority of the very priesthood of of Christ as our priest. And he declares him not just as a priest, but an eternal priest. A priest forever, as these verses put it. 
Okay? The obvious conclusion of this truth then is given to us in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Notice the passage. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, a better covenant, better promise. So Jesus Christ is the picture. He is the surety of the better covenant, the better promise. Look, he is established and ordained by the very oath of God, the declaration of God, the testimony of God, not just because he came through this line of a tribe. He was through the very testimony of God. How is this covenant, this testament better as it puts here? Okay, Uh, letter C. Notice it quickly. We see another T word, the tenure, the tenure. In other words, how long you hold on to a position, okay, when we talk about a tenured professor, a tenured teacher, a tenured worker, we could even say they, it's how long they have held on to a position, okay? The tenure, the power of Christ's priesthood is found in his endless life, while the priest, priesthood ended with death. His power was found in endless life. Their priesthood ended with death. Notice the comparison and the contrast. Look at verse 16. It explains it well for us. Okay? Who is made, speaking of Christ, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Jump down to verse 23. And they, that's speaking of the priests of the Old Testament, truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Okay? Do you see the, 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 the comparisons, contrast? There's multiple ones here. Number one, they were many, he is one. They were many, he is one, right? And we see that here. They died and therefore were no longer priests, and therefore there was a great need for there to be many priests. And yet verse 23 says what? They did not continue. That's a key word because we see it also used in describing Christ. They did not continue. How does it put it, verse 23? By reason of death. That ended their priesthood, their tenure as the the position as a priest. Death ended it. It was no more. So there had to be many priests, okay? We describe it this way in the outline. That priesthood had to be passed um, on to someone else that was of the tribe of Levi. But not so with Christ. That had to be passed on. There was some (laughs) secession to it, if we could describe it as such. It was not so with Christ. He has the power of an endless life. He's eternal, immortal. Verse 24 says what? He continueth forever. Okay? Because he continueth ever. And there again, that comparison of the word continue. They do not continue by reason of death. He continueth ever is what the verse says. Okay? And what's the wonderful outcome of this continuing forever, according to verse 24? He has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, that's a great word. Don't miss it, okay? And I think it's so crucial for us to break down some of these words to understand what is being said in the passage, or more importantly, the comparison that's being made, okay? When we read the unchangeable um, priesthood, what does it mean? Well, the word literally means that it cannot be violated, it cannot be broken, his priesthood. It cannot be violated. And I like this other description to it. It's not liable or necessary to be passed on to a successor. When it says that it's an unchangeable priesthood, it's a, it, you can't break it. It is forever. It's unchangeable. And it does not have to be passed on. The Old Testament priests, they died and had to be passed on. There are multiple high priests. Certainly there was thousands of other priests that did the different uh, offerings and things like that. 
That is not the case here. In fact, I would describe it this way. I think this is a good description. We might say that it's what? Non-transferable. Okay? You ever buy something with a warranty that is non-transferable if you ever sell it? doesn't move on. It's non-transferable. You can't transfer it to someone else. Well, the reality is here, this is saying that he has an unchangeable, non-transferable, unbreakable um, priesthood. But why? Why is it non-transferable? Because it doesn't have to be. Jesus Christ is what? He's eternal. He lives forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning, no end. He, is, he, he, is, he, he has always been, will forever be. He is eternal. Therefore, if he is the high priest, there is no need for a secession. There is no need for many priests. There, it, it, it's a done deal in Jesus Christ. He is eternal. In this, his priesthood is unique. It is eternal. It is changeless. And as we study it, the superiority abounds. And uh, it's just another picture of well, how do we compare these things? Well, it's an amazing comparison, and, and them and having to pass it on, one would come along, would die, and the next one would have to be put into place. Not so with Christ. He is an eternal priest with an unchangeable priesthood. Then we add one more thing to it for tonight, and then we'll be done. Look at verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. We read this last week. Didn't delve into it much, but we will tonight. Save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Okay? We break from our words that are start with T and we go with an E word. It's efficacy. Okay? The efficacy, the effectiveness, literally, of the priesthood. This is one of the areas of superiority. Christ's priesthood provides permanent and perfect salvation, while the priesthood of the Old Testament could only provide incompleteness. Christ's priesthood provides permanent and perfect salvation, while the priesthood of the Old Testament could only provide incompleteness. The difference in the effectiveness or the efficacy of the two priesthoods is astounding. Here we read what? Well, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And I told you before, I love that statement. Why is he able to save to the uttermost? Because he has an endless life. He lives forever. He is living even now. And he makes what? What does the verse say? Continual intercession for us. Okay? He dies. Our salvation dies. He alone could complete our salvation. In fact, the word uttermost, you, you ever wonder, what does that mean? Okay, it sounds like uh, to the uttermost, all right, to the well beyond. It literally means, the word means complete. It, it means all complete. It means perfect, okay? He alone could complete our salvation. He alone could make us perfect in God's eyes, okay? Now, if I say that word perfect, probably some of you, your ears perk up from having read the book of Hebrews thus far already. We'll see it even more the word perfect and perfection are found throughout this letter. It is one of the sub-themes of the book. The perfection, uh, the perfectness of Christ and how we are perfected in Him. It's found multiple times. It's one of those main sub-points. Jesus alone has perfected our salvation. Our, our salvation is good and guaranteed as long as Jesus Christ lives. And because He lives forever, we are what? Saved to the uttermost. And I love that part of that um, hymn, right? That says, glory, I'm saved. And uh, that's what I think of when, I, when we read this passage. We are saved to the uttermost. It is complete, it is perfect, like nothing else could ever do. And that really is the comparison. Because what do we think of with the priesthood of Aaron? 
How do they compare to this? Look at verse 11. That's exactly what the author gets to, verse 11. If therefore, here's the same word, perfection, same root word, were by the Levitical priesthood, okay? For under it, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron, okay? It is a good question. It is a rhetorical question. If the Levitical priesthood could perfect somebody, why do we need another priest? Why do we need this Jesus Christ? Why do we need the Messiah who will act as the priest? In other words, if the priest in the Old Testament could provide anyone complete and perfect salvation through their, their ministry, why was there a need for another priest to be specifically ordained by God? Why does he have to provide a better one? Well, verse 18 and 19 tell us. Look at verse 18. For there is verily, here's the verse we read again, but now notice the second part of the verse. For there is now, or there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, notice the description, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. And just notice the first phrase of verse 19. For the law made, what's the next word? Nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. It it, it was unprofitable, the verse says. It was weak, the verse says. It could not make anything perfect. There's your answer to verse 11. Well, if the Levitical law can make something perfect, why do we need another priest? Well, we need another priest because the Levitical law could not make something perfect. In fact, it made nothing perfect. I love the presentation that we have in the passage here of this truth, okay? It's descriptive. It's straightforward. The law and the priesthood could make nothing perfect. It failed at it. What did the law do? Well, it showed us how far we have fallen short of the holiness and glory of God. It revealed human weaknesses, okay? Verse 28 alludes to it. We we saw the part again, for the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, (laughs) They are not perfect. Therefore, an imperfect priest cannot do what? Cannot perfect you and I. They are imperfect. They cannot perfect us. Therein is the flaw. Therein is the issue. The law was weak. It was unprofitable. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Does that mean the law is no good? It's of no benefit? No, no, no. That's not saying the law is of no benefit, but the law is weak and unprofitable. Why is the law weak and unprofitable? Well, isn't it the law of God? Didn't God give it? Couldn't the law of God do something? Did he give us a weak and unprofitable law? Not at all. But if you could keep the law, guess what? It would be a powerful law. If you and I were free from sin, the law would then become a powerful thing by which you and I could have righteousness. But let me ask you this. According to Scripture, is there anyone that is righteous that has kept the law? No, not one. No, not one. Because of human weakness, the law in turn is weak. It is unprofitable. This law cannot make, it cannot make anything perfect. It isn't the law's fault per se. God gave us the law to reveal to us our firmity. Our infirmity, if we could use a more modern word of the sense, sense of the word. It reveals our sin, our incapability to keep the law. Therefore, you and I are in need of what? A high priest who can offer the sacrifice to make us perfect. What the Old Testament priest could not do, 
In fact, we would put it this way. Let me put it this way, okay? The, it was, speaking of the law, it was woefully weak and unprofitable for any man, not because the law is bad, because of human weakness and infirmity. So in that sense, the law gave no hope. It was unprofitable. It was weak. It could make nothing perfect. But would you look at the rest of verse number 19? For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better, what's the next word? Hope. Let's try that. Maybe all ten of us can get it. Here we go. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better, what's the next word? Hope. A better hope did. There's a better hope given. The law had no hope. Profitless. It it was weak. It could make nothing perfect. But in Jesus Christ, what have we found? Hope. To be made perfect. To find peace with God. To be made righteous. He is a priest that is far superior than any priest the Jewish religion or the Aaronic Levitical priesthood could ever offer. We'll get more into it. We'll develop that truth in verse number 19 as we get to it next week.